This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Martial arts is a spiritual activity, just as much as it is a physical activity. It hits you on a deeper level than just like what you're seeing, what you're taking in with your eyes. You know that a deep conversation is being had, and even though these two people are the only witnesses, they're both being forever changed. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's so nice to see you again. And I am super curious to know who you spoke with this week and whose voice we heard at the top of the show. Yes, we heard the voice of one of our three guests. There's three guests talking at once this week. That was the voice of Daniel Ma, uh, who, along with the other two guests of this week, Andy Lay and Brian Lay, uh, they're the three founders, filmmakers, members of Marshall Club, a uh, martial arts filmmaking group. And they're best known for doing the choreography and for appearing in the new film Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, yeah. A little movie that made quite an impact this year. Mm -hmm. And why exactly did you want to speak with Andy Bryan and Daniel? I mean, because they're fucking awesome, June. I mean, (laughs) come on. Uh, I loved Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. And I think that the fight choreography is not only really wonderful and innovative and interesting ways, but it's very key to the storytelling itself. And so, uh, and I had read somewhere that they're mostly self-taught and I thought that was really fascinating. And I just wanted to find out, you know, who are these guys and how do they do what they do? Fantastic. Is there anything else that people need to know before they listen today? So one thing is listeners might be a little bit confused uh, because we talk about the Daniels or Daniels quite a bit. Um, Daniels is the nom de cinema, shall we say, (laughs) of the writing directing partnership of Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner. They're uh, very strange and funny filmmakers. Their previous movie, Swiss Army Man, starred Daniel Radcliffe as a talking, farting corpse uh, and Paul Dano. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once really reflects their maximalist uh, sensibility. Um, also, because we talk about it at the end of the episode, uh, there's actually a butt plug that figures really prominently in the film. There's a part where um, Brian Lay, who appears in the film, um, his character has to jump on to a butt plug in order to access uh, extreme martial arts ability. And so we talk a little bit about choreographing that sequence. Wow. I have to say, too, that I've heard so many really fascinating discussions of the movie. Like, it's a rich text. There was a very excellent episode of Outward on which the host just, you know, went deep. It's it's a great movie to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I am very excited to hear this interview, but I believe that you have an extra segment that our Slate Plus members will hear. What's that? Yes, and and I should say, I don't say this every week, this is actually probably my favorite part of the interview is the part that our Slate Plus listeners get. And that's where we talk about what American action cinema can learn from Hong Kong action cinema and other uh, East Asian action cinema traditions. And we recommend a few films for the listeners to check out. That sounds fascinating. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that segment later in the show. 
All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Andy Lay, Brian Lay, and Daniel Ma. Andy, Brian, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to Talk About What You Do. Oh, thank you for having us. No, thank you for having us. It's an honor to be here. So maybe we should just start with like a really basic question. You know, when people ask you, oh, what do you do? How do you answer them? How do you describe your job or jobs? We don't have that many friends. So we only have ourselves. <laughs> and uh, Daniel, like, uh, well, uh, my experience is slightly different. Um, my fiance is in the corporate world. So as such, I end up talking to a lot of corporate heads. So mm-hmm. I always have to say, like, we've been in the YouTube space for about a decade uh, we're martial arts filmmakers, and and like the real justice of it is we're martial artists first. But we live in a society where doing martial arts as a profession isn't really uh, a readily understandable concept. So we always have to start with uh, something that people are ready to hear. Something like we're in acting, we're in filmmaking, but without the words martial arts, it's just not a complete description. You know. Mm, got it. Uh, what do you What do you think, Brian? We're on a mission to take over the world of martial arts action cinema. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good mission. That's a good mission to have. And of course the vehicle through which you are launching your campaign for world domination is Marshall club. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that? What is it? How did it get started? What do you do? Daniel, why don't we start with you? Okay. Well, I'll start by saying that Marshall club is a martial arts filmmaking group dedicated to promoting the virtues and ethics of martial arts and making it relevant to the world. And uh, it's composed of Andy, Brian, and me, but uh, we were the core group that makes up Marshall Club. But ever since uh, we started gaining traction on the internet, we kind of developed a family around us. So close friends, people we can trust to help us succeed in making our vision a reality. But the way it started was about 10 years back. Uh, Well, more than that, more like 12 years back at this point. We started off as uh, three dreamers, really. Martial artists who uh, had an affinity for playing with cameras, and we kind of discovered each other in the course of training. Uh, There was a place called Gym Max in Costa Mesa. It's an open gym, and what that means is it's a gymnastics facility that opens up its floor so that people who don't necessarily practice gymnastics can come there and hone their acrobatic skills. So it attracts people of all kinds of disciplines, martial artists, trickers, break dancers, and basically it's this place where creativity can thrive. So I was there uh, because it was a training ground for my my college martial arts demonstration team. And Andy and Brian were part of a similar independent martial arts team, or or actually just practicing as independent martial artists at that point. And uh, we realized that we shared this uh, mutual love for Chinese martial arts, which wasn't really in fashion anymore at the time. So we decided to train together. And we decided, uh, Andy asked me, would you want to film shapes, referring to like traditional kung fu on film, because that's a a style of action that wasn't really common anymore. So we started filming together, doing test fights, and eventually we got a little more uh, creative, a little more polished with our videos, started posting those online. And it wasn't really like with any particular goal in mind. But we wanted to put it out there just in case anybody wanted to see what we were doing. And over the years, traction started to build and build and build. And um, we realized that we had a dynamic amongst each other. So uh, fast forward to one fateful day in about late 2011. And we're having a conversation as we do about kung fu movies. Andy says, hey, Demon, what's your favorite kung fu movie? 
And it was one of those things where, like, we both kind of sensed what we were going to say at the same time, and we both said Marshall Club. It's a, it's a 1981 Shaw Brothers movie, and it's about martial arts. It's like the most martial arts you can get in a movie. It talks about martial arts culture and etiquette and just what it means to be a martial artist. And it, it ends with this fantastic fight sequence that takes place in an alley. And um, the alley gets increasingly narrow. And one martial artist, uh, a martial artist from the north, has to fight a martial artist from the south. And they display all of their knowledge. As the corridor gets more and more narrow, they have to get more and more advanced with the martial arts techniques they're using. And they're having this discourse on martial arts. It really, really dives into what it means to be a martial artist and what it is like to encounter another martial artist. And that really captures the spirit of martial club. And when we realize that we kind of have that dynamic, we embody that dynamic and we're kind of like a club, we decided to call ourselves martial club. Amazing. Uh, you mentioned a couple things there that I want to follow up on. One is shapes for our listeners who are maybe not the most familiar with uh, Kung Fu or with, you know, action cinema or whatever. What are shapes? Andy, would you like to take that one? Sure. Shapes is like, have you guys ever seen the old, like the old school Kung Fu movies where they're using tiger style or yeah. mantis style or snake style? And yeah. like the the kung fu they're using is very intricate, but also very like it's like a old school rhythm that isn't really it's very beady and like the rhythm is very uh, clean and defined. And a big reason why it's called shapes because it's a literal shape. Like in a lot of Western <laughs> movies now, when when you know the the action that's like kind of taken over in the recent years, it's a lot of um, like straight up brawling or like a punching and kicking. But then what Andy said about the intricate Kung Fu styles, it's like, you got Crane. That's a strip. Shake. Exactly. <laughs> Tiger or Crane. You know, like Mantis, all this. So, yeah. Shake. Exactly. And because exactly. Our, our listeners at home can't, uh, can't see it, Brian is doing... <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to watch. Brian is just doing these like perfect recreation of, of those shapes. Um, before you all got together, I want to talk a little bit about your background because I've read in a bunch of places about y'all being predominantly self-taught. Is that accurate? Well, it's um, the interesting thing about Marshall Club is it's a, a dynamic. So like in, in many ways, we form a spectrum. So um, on one end, you have Brian, who's like almost completely self-taught. He has had a little bit of like a very little formal training here and there. Uh, and then you have Andy, who's like maybe spent like a handful of years. But like for both of them, the majority of what they know as martial artists, the majority of the things they've achieved, mostly self-taught. Mm, I, on amazing. the other hand, um, grew up in a formal Kung Fu structure. So I was under a Sifu, uh, a member oh, wow. of a school. Yeah. So yeah. Da Daniel's practically our encyclopedia. If we needed anything yes. authentic, we all, <laughs> we all go to him. He knows the history. He knows everything. We need like, yo, uh, or, or Big Brother, we need, we need some sort of northern Shaolin on, on this piece. Like, can, can you please educate us? Yeah, um. <laughs> I, 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 I tend to think it's that variation, that, that variance that makes the dream work. Like, uh, on one end, you have, like, completely unorthodox, and on the other hand, you have completely orthodox. So I think the harmony that Marshall Club hits is somewhere in between. I, it was a natural dynamic, mm -hmm. because sometimes... We need structure and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we need a mix of all of them. And the whole dynamic between, you know, orthodox and unorthodox, um, it just works perfectly. Like sometimes for me, 
I would stray away from the path a little too much and and demon and you'd be like, okay, Brian, bring it back a bit. Bring it back a bit. You know, it, it just works. Yeah. And, and I think part of it is also just this subconscious absorption of what Bruce Lee taught us, right? I'm wearing a Bruce Lee shirt. And I think like yeah. who from our generation is not influenced by Bruce Lee and what right. he preached was absorb what's useful and reject what's useless. And uh, I think in that, the, the spirit of that is to, to seek out what works and not to be defined by boundaries and rules. So even though I came up in a very rigid environment with like a very finite idea of how to do things, I quickly recognized in Andy and Brian that what they do works and it came without that structure. So maybe it's the structure that's not exactly essential. And I think like that's always been the tale of our martial arts journey together is that we're learning from each other. We're practicing martial arts itself, but also learning all kinds of other things. We're learning filmmaking. We're learning to talk to people with nice voices like you, you know? Like, and and <laughs> we, we learn from each other. And uh, I think that's very much core to our dynamic. Right, and, and the one, one thing I always liked, Dima, is that your Sifu never gave you flack because any other traditional like martial yeah. arts, Kung Fu schools would be like, you're staying under our lineage only. You don't go out and, and practice, you know, other stuff. Yeah. Hey, shout out to Sifu Manuel. Thank yep. you for yeah. being so supportive throughout the yeah, years. Yeah, my, my Sifu Manuel Marquez he is himself uh, very progressive as a martial artist because, you know, the, there is an old school way to do martial arts. And usually that entails going to one master, one school, one style, and you live and die by that style. But my Sifu learned from a lot of different masters. Like, he recognized that he lives in a world where the smorgasbord of martial arts is available to him, so why not eat your fill? And uh, he learned from a whole bunch of people, and as a result, taught his students several styles. And I think we've just taken that same spirit and furthered it to the next level, if you will. So, part of your education, that for all three of you, though, is, uh, you know, a very steady diet of martial arts films, right. Of, of, of Kung Fu films. And do you feel like, you know, um, as you've studied these films, do, do you have, is it that you started to figure out kind of the individual star or choreographer's style and what those hallmarks are? You know, like I was thinking, as I told you before we started taping, we've been, I've been going through this Jackie Chan binge with my wife and, you know, in the eighties, he gets really into like how many everyday objects can be in this room so that I can fight these people with the everyday objects versus like Jet Li might be doing something different you know is, is that part of it is like sort of breaking these things down into kind of a granular you know what each person's style is like andy why don't we start with you i feel like everyone's gonna have something different to offer something different to bring to the table for us we watch a lot we absorb a lot and whatever naturally inspires us in the moment when we're filming that's what naturally comes out. And that's how I like to say you learn from the veterans who came before you. You learn from them. They, they created right. the textbook for you with all these Kung Fu films already. It's your job as the next generation to learn from them. You pay homage to them, but at the same time, you must add your own modern flair and elevate it. Yes. Um, and if I could uh, add my color to what Andy just said from my point of view. Uh, Andy and Brian have a very, very interesting attribute about them, and that is they, they learn very visually, they see something, and they understand it on a fundamental level. Like, the, the, to use the word that you just used, granular, they do break it down to a granular level, and I think they understand Jackie Chan's style to a granular degree, as well as Jet Li, as well as Donnie Yen, as well as all of the ones worth studying. 
which is pretty much all of them. Um, but like Andy said, they do it naturally. Like, whereas someone like me, who's very analytical, I would try to break it down into very simple things that I can understand. They see it and they already understand it to that degree naturally. And uh, I think, yes, to answer your question, yes, we, we, we have learned to recognize the styles of these uh, heroes who came before us to that degree. But the way through which Marshall Club absorbed it was very organic. All right. Maybe I've been putting this off long enough. We should talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. The best action comedy since at least Hot Fuzz. And, and, and a great deal of that is so due to your incredible work on the film. So let's talk about what your, your jobs on the movie were specifically. Because I know, uh, uh, Brian, you're in it. Uh, are all three of you in it? or are... Me and Brian are in it. Daniel played a very heavy hand in the previs and the choreography. So let's uh, so, talk about previs, because for our listeners who don't know how these movies are made, what is the previs step of putting an action film together? Right. So previs, you can kind of guess it to be uh, short for previsual. So uh, for action scenes, a lot of what we would do is we would actually just go into a gym or somewhere with, you know, safe anywhere, really. Um, and you could just bust out, even with your phone camera too. And uh, in a convenient way, you could just workshop all the ideas and shoot it shot for shot. And uh, uh, with you know very minimal setup, and you can do a quick cut. Sometimes you can do a quick cut on your phones too. Nowadays, it's easier to do that, and uh, you can just kind of watch it and kind of pre-visualize it. And then this kind of becomes the shot list for on the day on the set. That's when they'll and, they'll and use so it. Were the Daniels there with you in those things, working it out with you and figuring out what it's going to look like? Or Usually we would be alone doing it and we would work with them virtually. But sometimes I love how hands on the Daniels are. Sometimes they would come into the gym and be like, oh, yeah, can I see that camera? And they would they would start shooting, too, which I love how how hands on they are, you know. But but usually we, we would work with them virtually and then they would hand us notes and be like, oh, can you give more of a Kill Bill vibe here? Or, oh, there's this one shot I really wanted. Like, can you do something like this? And we'd, and we'd find a medium ground and work with it, you know? So it was a pretty cool process. In the beginning, they wanted to bring back this Hong Kong flair. Right. Um, it, was, it was in the original treatment when they treated, uh, sent it to us. And so they, they said they scoured, like, the world. They couldn't really find anyone. They saw one of our videos. We were shooting... A drunken master homage, like old school style with all the old film grain and the old sound effects and the, the cheesy dubbing. Um, they thought we were in China and then they saw the palm trees and they're like, wait, they're in California. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's how they found us. Uh, our action style kind of jived with them. We have mm-hmm. this action comedy style. And I think what's more important than just um, doing this Hong Kong action is that we're a group of fun kids and we know how to have fun and they want guys who are willing to take butt plugs and like have fun with it and fight. So it's, it's like that type of energy they were looking for. Right. So naturally a lot of our shots and uh, a lot of our ideas lined up with theirs. Really we were looking at them for guidance because if you can imagine the movie in, in screenplay form or in script form, it's well, kind of I hard do to have understand. a question. Yeah. Yeah. What, what <laughs> did it, you know, to take like a, a sequence in the movie, you know, the, the one where, um, Michelle Yeoh and uh, her family are kind of like in the 
sex dungeon safe room and she starts downloading all of the different abilities. She verse jumps and downloads all the different abilities from these different persona. And so, and then bursts out into the room and starts fighting the, the group of people. Um, I don't have the movie in front of me, but I did watch it recently. You know, you know, she comes into the person to get the ability to breathe and the ability to, or to hold her breath and another ability to fight blindly. You know, she threw, she throws the, gas masks back she's fighting people without opening her eyes and then she sees the guy with the riot shield she you know absorbs the spin the the sign flippy guy's abilities and then she beats the crap out of everyone with the riot shield um what does the screenplay of that look like is that beaded out or is it literally just like michelle yo downloads some personalities and beats the living stuffing out of people or you know like <laughs> what is it what does it say there it's different for every movie and and every script uh, some scripts I see, they would literally type out like, oh, um, so-and-so throws a kick and a punch. He gasps for air, you know? But for the Daniels, it was more so throws a gas mask, quote, insert action. If, if I can remember correctly, it was like insert action. And then they would work together with us to kind of figure out what it is they really wanted. They, you know? they did They did hit the key points. Yeah, though, yeah. They had the key points the key on points. Yeah. Like she downloads... You know, she presses her earpiece, she downloads Sign Spinning Universe, and then from there it was like, have fun with all the sign spinning moves you can. And um, <laughs> yeah, so for us, it was just a workshop. It's pretty much Jackie Chan influence, right? Like, yeah. you so, use a riot shield and, and kind of, you know, workshop however much you can. And then at the end of the day, they kind of, they watched the previs and they gave us notes and we would go mm-hmm. back and reshoot some things. And maybe they're inspired by a new note and then we would go back. Got it. Got it. Cool. And so, uh, and then when you're on set, of course, I'm sure there's things that need to be adjusted and changed because of cam- new camera moves or, you know, the space is a little bit different or, you know, whatever it is. So is there a lot, there must be a lot of problem solving on, on day of as well, right? Right. However, I will say the fact that we were based and shooting in a building for like 80% of the movie, our rehearsal space was literally next door to where they were mm. shooting. Sometimes um, when they're shooting at another part of the building, we get to go to the, literally go physically go to the part where they're shooting the fanny pack, for example, and just block out everything and workshop and make sure it fits in that space. Like, oh, okay, we're shooting here. We're close to the ledge. Okay, we got to go for a wider lens. And we get to just workshop and make sure it works on the day. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Andy Lay, Brian Lay, and Daniel Ma. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address, or you can give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Andy Lay, Brian Lay, and Daniel Ma. You know, you were mentioning earlier the film Marshall Club that you're 
company is named after and that sequence where they're getting sort of more and more advanced in their fighting as the scene goes along. It seems to me that there's something paralleled in everything everywhere all at once in the major set piece of the everything sequence, because they're constantly downloading new fighting skills to, to fight one another. So they're kind of becoming better fighters, particularly Evelyn over the course of that sequence. Well, Evelyn and, and you guys, once you jump on the gigantic butt plugs, but the, uh, um, uh, over the course of that sequence. And I was just wondering about, you know, like how you thought about that as choreographers or, you know, how that shaped the kind of narrative arc of what you were doing in your staging. Uh, Daniel, why don't we start with you? You know, I think the the answer to, th- to that question is both conscious and subconscious. Because consciously, like, we know what the instructions are. We know how the story's supposed to play out. And uh, we know what beats we're supposed to hit. And, w- of course, we're, we're constantly searching through this uh, library, this visual library that we've created in our heads through years and years of kung fu movies. But also subconsciously, we know that um, martial arts is a spiritual activity. Right. Just as much as it is a physical activity. And we also kind of understand the spirit, even if we don't fully understand what's happening in the story, because there's a lot of confusion if you read that script. But uh, understanding more or less what what trajectory it's taking emotionally as well as physically. And like uh, when you watch the fight sequence in Martial Club, it hits you on a deeper level than just like what you're seeing, what you're taking in with your eyes. You know that a deep conversation is being had. And even though these two people are the only witnesses, they're both being forever changed. And we know that martial arts has that kind of content in it. And we know that because it has that, it's the perfect tool to tell the story that the Daniels are trying to tell. So like as we're choreographing, we're subconsciously guided by that notion, even if we can't put a finger on it, even if we can't put words on it. Can we talk about the staging of uh, Wayman and the Fanny Pack for a moment? Uh, one of my co-hosts was like, you have to ask them about Wayman and the Fanny Pack. Uh, just about, you know, what your process was like for figuring that out. What, were there specific films you were thinking about? Um, you know, was a, it a specific adaptation of something you had seen? Or, you know, how did you develop how Wayman was going to beat up all the security guards with a um, fish tank pebbles filled uh, Fanny Pack? Right. That one was in my opinion, like the most fun one. That was like the first previs we worked on. It was like, okay, guys, here's a minute fight, fanny pack, go have fun with it. Let's just, the only part that they had noted was that he fights with a shorter fanny pack in the beginning. Pretty much it became just like a martial arts showcase, which for us martial arts fans, we love martial arts showcases, right? So we did, we just thought of pretty much all the cool moves we could think of with a fanny pack the second half of the fight all right he puts pebbles in and now it's longer so how now like how many ways can you fight with a short fanny pack and a long fanny pack surprisingly key like huge ups to key because he uh he actually did 95 percent of the fight himself the only part that he did use a double was when he flipped over onto the gun um that i jumped in for him um but uh other than that, like he was practicing very diligently. Like he was always, uh, he would always come into rehearsal whenever he had the chance. He would like practice with the fanny yeah. pack. His wife Echo, his his wife Echo would be like, "Yeah, he's breaking all the lamps at home, just swinging that fanny pack and that rope around." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, did he, he did he have a martial arts background? He did. He did taekwondo, and he's he has done work in the film industry as a you know in stunts over in Asia. Um, but in this film, he wanted to focus on primarily acting. But 
when he jumped on, it's not like he was completely green to it. You know, yeah, we, he wasn't foreign to action for sure. Yeah, he wasn't he foreign in. to action for sure. That being said, just the the level of physicality behind that choreography, like it's not really something you learn at a kung fu school. People have right. this misconception that if I go to a taekwondo school for twenty years, if I practice wushu for fifteen years, I'll be able to do what I see on the screen. I think there's this extra jump, this uh, thinking outside of the box and not being limited by uh, the confines of reality, if you will. That mm-hmm. that I think. Andy and Brian have that really, really well. Marshall Club embodies that really, really well. But I think that's the key to, to creating sequences like this. You have to kind of let go of what you think is right and proper and just let your imagination go. And I have to imagine, I mean, may, maybe it didn't happen on this film, but, you know, not every actor can or bodies work differently. Someone can have a lot of ability and their body can simply maybe not do this exact thing that you had worked out in previs or whatever. And I'm just wondering about how you make those adjustments on the fly or in rehearsal and how you teach people what they need to do. Michelle needs no, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of fact, like Michelle's the type that wouldn't, she's like, I don't, I don't need the rehearsal. I'll just, I'll just come on to set and learn it, which, you know, she, that's how they did it in Hong Kong. When right. She was, that's how she she got her reps and was on on the take. I mean, she would technically come in for rehearsal, but she's just like, okay, what is it? Da da da. Okay, got it. Cool. I'll see you guys on. You know, <laughs> pretty much. Would she would she recommend adjustments based on you know? She for, would. I mean, she has such an extensive experience. I would imagine she would. she'd be like, oh well, maybe it's the, the the gesture the palm is facing out instead of to the side or you know whatever it is. Definitely, we we would create some of the moves based on how we think Michelle Yeoh would perform it because like we're no stranger to michelle yo we we've watched her films we've we've studied every punch and kick she's thrown but at the end of the day michelle yo in her current stage would she's still michelle no one's gonna know how to throw a punch or a kick the same way michelle yo right. actually would so she's she part would of make the heroic her, trio of yep. course <laughs> and and she would make the uh she would make the adjustments and whenever she does for us it's like all you right I think the mo- more important thing is to bring out the best in every actor, you know? Mm-hmm. So l- let's say if we pre and we choreographed a movement a certain way, l- l- let's say Key is spinning the fanny pack this way, right? But he's like, oh, I'm feeling this is better for me. And he'll do something even cooler. And it's like, dude, yeah, do that, do that, you know? So it's more so making the minor adjustments to what suits the suits the actor the most yeah. you know and, it, and, and what looks best yeah it's it's better to have the actor own the movements and act as opposed to them trying to you know learn the intricate movements i'd rather have it simple and they can actually own it um as far as the other actors like on, on the staircase fight and the empathy fight at the end mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those actors were actually stunt performers so um, they were able to pick up pretty quick you know physicality is their strong suit and the Daniels casted them based on, you know, right. their looks and their energy. And they're like, okay, let's use. So we, we brought in a roster, Tim Ulick, our, our stunt coordinator brought in a roster of stunt performers and they, they're not strangers to physical movement and rhythm. Uh, before we close, I should probably ask about the butt plug, uh, <laughs> sequence. Um, uh, <laughs> our favorite, uh, uh, yeah, was it? Was it? They, was they it thought they were going to get away with that. Yeah, I know. So, so what's it, what's it like trying to practice your martial arts with like a prop uh, butt plug attached to your costume? Well, first off, um, the the wardrobe department and the and the props department they they did a fucking 
awesome job keeping that thing intact. It was a piece of rubber uh, glued to a leotard. I, I think that's what it was. Right. No, they strapped it on too, like a Hong Kong, like a Hong Kong harness. Oh yeah, yeah. It was like a harness to our waist, kind of. But um, right. The really funny part is when the Daniels were explaining this to us. Actually, we were in, in their backyard, in their little works, in in their man cave, in their their workspace. You know. And as they're explaining it to us, they're like, yeah, so-and-so, I, I'm thinking you guys do a fight here. And then while uh, Andy is having to throw down with Michelle, Brian, you're going to jump over. And then Daniel Shiner, I remember him specifically getting into the squat position going like, yeah, and you're going to leap over this desk. You're going to be in this position. And just them explaining that, you, you, you can imagine how, how crazy it sounds. Yeah, one thing, but we were down though. Yeah, we were down. We know? were totally down. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, I mean, it, it may seem odd and weird, but one thing we recognized was that the Daniels were very much like, like me, Andy, and Dima. Where okay, it doesn't make sense right now, but they have heart and they have vision, and that's what we trusted in them. You know, so that's one thing I want to throw out for sure. Right, and, and it forced us to get creative too with how many ways you can, like, what kicks, what flying kicks can you throw in a butt with a butt plug? What uh you know, what flips you can do. And, you know, so that, that forced us to get creative, but I, I really do want to give it up to the, the wardrobe department and props department for making the, the butt plugs. Like they had, they were, the prop ones were more so rubber. So they weren't mm-hmm. really heavy. Like it didn't throw off our equilibrium when we were doing like the flying kicks. Yeah. So you, yeah. So you can just go in with the action yeah. and it'll just stay there. <laughs> I, I see. Well, you know, we talk a lot about on, uh, on this show, how limitations are really what spur creativity. So it seems like this was a case where, you know, thinking about how limited your movement would be in that circumstance, uh, sparked something. Exactly. I mean, I mean, and the heart of it goes back to, um, like, like Jackie Chan films, right? Like right. Jackie Chan films, he's handcuffed. How how are you going to fight with, you know, while you're handcuffed? And you got to get creative with it. And it's, uh, I think this film, within the action, it carries the same heart. Daniel, Brian, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your process. Thank you, Isaac, for having us. This was fun. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you, Isaac. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh my goodness, what a fun group of guys. I, I know, delightful. Delightful. I, I hope this doesn't sound dopey, but like it's so clear, even you know, just listening, I didn't see them as you did, that they have just a deep, enduring passion for both martial arts and the way that martial arts can be filmed and presented on video. And it's just so great that they've been able to communicate that enthusiasm and expertise and parlay it into some high-profile gigs. They're they're living the dream. I know, and that's actually part of why I wanted to talk to them, is, ah. that, is that feeling, you know? When you have these three guys, they meet at a gym, <laughs> they start making videos of their work and posting it on YouTube, and then suddenly they're choreographing for Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh <laughs> and working on the best action movie of, of 2022. I mean... Yeah. It's a really wild story, and I think you can hear in that interview how much they still hold on to that youthful outsider enthusiasm and how important that is to their work, even as they're becoming more successful and becoming sort of insiders. Yeah, totally. It's so fantastic to hear, effectively, the Daniels, uh, you know, the the writer-directors of Everything Everywhere All at Once, discovered this week's guest's on YouTube, you know, yeah. that's 
yet another creative person's dream. You know, we think about Lana Turner being discovered at Schwab's soda fountain, which even though it was also sadly a bit of a myth, it's it's a different situation because it was just a way that she looked. She had a certain look and so, you know, a dude, let's face it, went and talked to her. Um, this case is about somebody with the power to hire, seeing complete strangers' skills and their tone and their attitude and thinking, they've got what we need. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's great. It's a dream. But also, it's a real testimonial for putting your work on the internet, which for filmmakers might be putting stuff on YouTube, for writers that could be, you know, doing a blog or being very active on Twitter or whatever it is. And, you know, there's very reasonable pushback against, quote, working for free, but it can really pay off. And lots of the places where people get to show off their skills, like YouTube or, you know, maybe Medium for writers, are monetized. And I'm curious where you fall on that question of working Mm. for free. I do want to address one thing before I get to your question, which is this thing about discovery, which I really do feel like, you know, we had one other guest much earlier on on the show, and maybe we can link to it on the show page, Michael Abels, who does the scores for Jordan Peele's films. And Jordan Peele discovered him because he was looking for, you know, a black composer to do Get Out. And he was looking at the listening to the music that was out there on people's, you know, websites. And he found Michael Abels' work. And now Michael Abels is like his John Williams. So I do think when you want to do something new and you want to do something different, you have to find innovative ways to find the people who can help you do that. And clearly Daniels did that by finding Marshall Club. Um, To your question about, you know, working for free, I do think there's a difference between making your own work for free, which is what Marshall Club started out Mm. doing, Mm. and working for other people for free, which is what the arts often and unreasonably demand of young up-and-comers. The former, when you're making your own work with your buds, you're putting it on YouTube, you're putting it on Bandcamp, whatever. Like, I don't think there's any issue with that. You might wind up giving away more than you necessarily want to, you know, but I started out as a blogger. Yeah. I started out giving my writing yeah. away for free. I didn't, wasn't thinking <laughs> of myself as a professional writer and it's how I became a professional writer. So I'm certainly yeah. not going to poo poo that. I think you need to be smart about it, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's a great way to get out there and, and have more people learn about your work in, in terms of the other thing, like, Look, at the beginning of your career, you have to pay your dues. And sometimes that means, you know, working on a friend's project for free or a student film that you're not really going to get paid for, you know, whatever it is. And I think that's fine. I mean, that way you get um, experience, you meet people, everything like that. But I don't think you should do it for very long. And you should be constantly weighing the pros and cons of doing it before you say yes. And I just also want to add that if you're actually the person in charge of that process, the one who is making the thing or producing the thing or whatever, you absolutely have an ethical duty to pay everyone working with and for you. Even if it is just a nominal fee, a hundred bucks, whatever, whatever you can afford, you need to be paying it to people. Uh, Even if it's just a nice way of saying thank you, it is a way of saying your time and your labor and your creativity is valuable. And I absolutely, absolutely believe that the people in charge have that duty. Yeah, that is a really great distinction. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I was also really struck with the way that Andy, Brian and Daniel studied and learned from classic Kung Fu and martial arts movies. You know, we often talk about learning from work that we admire, but I'd love for you to talk about specific pieces of writing that you've broken down and studied. Uh, What does that look like for you? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think with film and with painting, with things that have a really visual component, the process for doing it is pretty clear, right? You watch, you think like, well, how long were each of these shots? What was the camera angle? What camera did they use to do that? How is this, you know, filmed? And you can see how that that influence kind of radiates out. Um, In terms of writing, when I was in graduate school and really switching careers from directing to writing, I felt like I really had to, to catch up and to learn some new tools. And so I developed this like fairly extreme method, which was uh, if I found a passage in a piece of writing that I found effective, I would transcribe it into a notebook, a paragraph, never longer than a paragraph, but (laughs) I would transcribe that paragraph into a notebook and then I would diagram those sentences and then out of those diagrams, create a kind of mad lib of the paragraph. (laughs) And then I would rewrite the paragraph in my own words with my own ideas, but I had to keep to those sentence structures. I had to keep to those same number of words. And that was a way of learning how those rhythms, how that syntax of those sentences became a personal way of expressing those ideas. It was absolutely invaluable. I don't have the time to do it Mm -hmm. anymore, but Mm -hmm. I need to sort of find time to create that practice. I think if you're ever bored of your own writing, it's a really good way to very quickly learn uh, some new tricks. Uh, So I don't really do that anymore, but I will say, you know, when I'm reading something and there's a gesture or idea or image or sentence structure I admire, I do read it a few times and try to kind of absorb it via osmosis. I will say that specifically with writing, you know, you need to be reading all the time, whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be if you're a cultural history person like myself, you don't have to be reading cultural history, but you do have to be reading all the time. And and one of the reasons why this was something I really learned from Jonathan Lethem, who talks a bit about this in in his essay collection, The Ecstasy of Influence. Um, If you read a lot of books and you remember certain things about them, you know, when you reach an impasse in your own writing, where you're like, you know, I have to describe this room. Where have I seen rooms described really effectively? And then you can just go back through and read those passages and then just kind of let that influence work on you, which is not mm. the same as plagiarizing. I'm not saying yes, you yes, yes. then, you know, uh, but um, it's a way of really letting the influence kind of come through you. Yeah, uh, I, I'm reminded of when I spoke with Melinda Lowe uh, on working, um, she talked about doing something very similar when she was having trouble writing a party scene. She went to a writer whose work she admires, who she knew had written party scenes yeah. and just kind of marinated in it, you know, like yeah. began by effectively copying it, knowing that, you know, after all the reworking and rewriting, it would not be the same, you know, at the end of all that process. But that was a place to start. If you're stuck, start with something that you know works. It's really smart, I think. Yeah, especially if you're trying something you haven't done before. You know, I yeah. read like a lot of intros before writing the intro to the method because I don't like intros. I yeah. I was very resistant to doing one. And I was like, well, lots of people do them. What are they like? And I just read a bunch of, you know, I went through all the yeah. nonfiction in my house and looked at, yeah. you know, intros or whatever. Well, yours was great. So good work. Thank um, you. Maybe this comes out of my being a very sedentary person. I mean, I love to dance. I like to take walks, but I've never been athletic. And I've certainly never wanted to learn martial arts. You, though, I know you worked as an actor and you trained in martial arts. I'm sure you're more connected to your body, to the physicality of art than I am. When you're writing, which I think of as being pretty sedentary, Do you ever use physical techniques to kind of unlock new levels of creativity or to effectively become unblocked? 
I love that you think of me as someone who's in touch with <laughs> my body, given that I couldn't be less in touch with my body these days. That is a previous me of decades ago who I barely even recognize. Nonsense. Um, Nonsense. No, I am more of a, most of the time I'm sort of like, I am a roving consciousness trapped in this mobile meat prison type of <laughs> type of person, which I know is not a healthy way to think about it. But um, I will say one thing I do is I pace all the time mm, when I'm writing and thinking out ideas. I pace. And if I'm stuck, I go on walks or I take a shower. Those I think are very conducive to, to coming up with ideas. Um yeah, like I pace all the time when I'm working on something. It drives uh, my wife crazy. But, you know, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll get a few sentences in and then I'll just get so kind of riled up that I start pacing and thinking about things. And then a couple <laughs> more sentences come and I jump back down and and so on and so forth. There is a school of writing, particularly in the poetry world, that's a little more focused on using weird physical stuff to try to unlock creativity. It's called somatic poetry. It's trying to mm. induce some kind of physical state. But honestly, like... I think it's kind of bullshit. I'll be mm-hmm. totally honest. If there's somatic poets who listen to this show and you want to write in uh, or call us and, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about it some more, but you read Please somatic do. poetry prompts and it's like copper is the metal associated with Aphrodite. So put a penny under your tongue oh, and no, walk around all day and then write three pages of love poetry or like, it's just, I just don't believe that it, it, I, it just seems like people doing a bit. I'll be completely mm-hmm. honest. <laughs> Um, but please I act- write to us, somatic poets. Please, somatic poets. If you're if you're out there, somatic poets, please uh, uh, address hate mail to June Thomas at slate.com. No, 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 <laughs> <What>? I'm kidding. <laughs> Drop us a line at working at slate.com. Um, but you know, having just written this book about the method, mm. all those people thought that getting in touch with your body was super important to creativity. Mm. Stanislavski thought it was really important. Uh, Boleslavski thought it was really important. Uh, Lee Strasberg pioneered a certain series of relaxation exercises because he actually thought in order to unlock your creativity, you needed to be totally physically relaxed. Mm. Um, And that was something that Stanislavski also thought as well. So maybe we should adopt it. Maybe we should be sitting there doing these uh, relaxation exercises first. I don't know, but I've just never been able to do it. Again, the, the left brain rational side of me is so dominant that I get really, really resistant to it. Next year. Next year. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can all do that as our uh, New Year's resolution and check in on working overtime. Yes. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just as a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Andy Lay, Brian Lay, and Daniel Ma for being our guests this week. And extra special thanks to our producer, the Sifu of audio editing and production, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with writer Casey Parks. Until then, get back to work. Hey, Slate Plus listeners, thank you so much for everything you do to support what we do right here. I'm working. I got a little extra time with Daniel, Brian, and Andy, and we are going to talk a bit about uh, Hong Kong and and other uh, East Asian cinema, action cinema traditions versus the United States, I guess, or something. Because one of the things that um, I really loved about this movie is, you know, American 
action cinema and Asian action cinema are in dialogue with each other. They borrow from each other. Sometimes they literally borrow actors or choreographers from each other. Um, Yen Wu Ping, who's, you know, one of the greatest choreographers of all time, had a, had a robust Hollywood career as well. Um, and I feel like this movie is kind of bridging those, those gaps as well a bit and, and kind of trying to bring these multiple traditions together. And you're so steeped in, Hong Kong action cinema, and I'm sure you're steeped in American action cinema as well. I'm wondering like what you think are some of the conventions or visual ideas that we should be borrowing more over here, importing more over here. Cause you said yourself earlier, um, there aren't that many people around who do what you do. Okay. I'll, I'll try to explain it this way. You have the term martial arts. And I think a lot of emphasis is placed on martial, but not necessarily art. So in, in, in Chinese culture, in Asian culture, martial arts has been around so long. It started as fighting techniques, war techniques, but it lived so long and flourished to the point where it became art and therefore beautiful. And I think because it's so steeped in the culture, they've learned to celebrate it. They've learned to display it proudly in forms like Peking opera, in forms right. like... Yeah, and, and eventually movies, right? But then I feel like there's this maybe subconscious attitude in the West where they treat like violence and fighting as the sturdy thing. They like hold it with their fingertips. They maybe carry it on a pole. And therefore, like when, when they insert it into movies, it's a necessary part of a lot of movie genres like action, right? But they treat it as like this thing that they just insert. All right, insert violence here, insert shooting here. And therefore, there's this disconnect between the storytellers uh, on the narrative side and the action designers. And I think when it comes together, it just doesn't mesh because there's this lack of harmony and unity in thought. Whereas in the East, martial arts is the storytelling. That is the medium through which the narrative is advanced. And I think that's why it results in this legible artistic display of movement that helps people understand what's happening in the story better. It's almost like the difference between good musicals and bad musicals, right? It's like the song with the fights as the songs, right? You know, you're conveying story yes. and character that I come from a theater background. Forgive me. I have to relate everything to musicals, but you know, if you're, if, if musicals really working character and plot and everything is developing through the songs, you're not just stopping so that someone can sing something pretty or, you know, whatever. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think the, the, the thing that should be adopted is to think of it as art, to see the art in it and to display, display it proudly in a way that helps the story. I think some of it also, it seems to me, is like, even if something is really fascinatingly choreographed, it's like, there's also the extra element of you have to shoot it and edit it properly. And I was wondering if that was sort of part of the why, you know, you're, you had this extensive previs uh, period, if you feel like that helped shape the, how everything was going to wind up looking by the end. Very much so. But I think before you even get to the previous period, it's, it's, um, it's just how much time has been spent in honing that craft. So we, we watch fantastic martial arts movies from the 70s and the 80s. And that's because uh, the people featured in those films spent their childhoods practicing day in and day out to to learn how to kick that high and learn how to flip that high and uh they they devoted their lives to honing a craft that made it uh that made them suitable for for performing these kinds of actions on screen whereas nowadays you don't see it so much because people don't spend their childhoods doing such things uh we're expected to make pop stars or actors look good without actually having put in the work. So we rely on wires, we rely on CGI. But I think at the end of the day, if you want to tell a compelling story about martial artists 
sometimes you need martial artists. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you, Dicey. Thank you, Dima. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned the kind of the, the childhood training. I mean, you know, like we're, uh, Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung were like classmates at Beijing Opera School, right? I exactly. Mean, and then they spent exactly. their lifetime collaborating. Yeah. Well, before we go, could we maybe, uh, uh, could I have each of you maybe recommend a movie that our uh, listeners could stream or, or watch that would, it, you just pick one. We all know a million of them, you know, just pick it to be like, now, now you'll see sort of some of the things we were just talking about in this interview. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Brian? Mine would be the story of Riccio. <laughs> <laughs> the reason being it's because um, it's the most, most hardcore blend of martial arts and that gore type horror feel it's not horror but it has that gore feel where everything's just over the top like punching someone's like like there's that character named oscar punch his gut in pulled his gut out and then um there's his boss in the back oh yeah yo he got a lot of guts oscar just (laughs) over the top comedy and action Mm. that's what sells it for me that's (laughs) brian's uh yeah forte right there for me it would be a 36 chambers of shaolin because Mm -hmm. it, it it um it's a zero to hero story, and you see one character struggle through the thirty six chambers of Shaolin and grow from literally a, a zero, like a just a normal person, into a martial arts master. And just to see that story, and and it's like a documentary of martial arts movies. It's unapologetically forty five minutes of him training. And I think if you want like a documentary on that encapsulates martial arts, the martial arts spirit, and the martial arts journey, um, that's the film for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and recommend Fist of Legend. Uh, that's Jet Li's take on the Chen Zen story. And uh, the reason I recommend it is because it tells a story that's not bound by culture and history, even though it's a story about culture and history. It talks about the time when there's Japanese oppression in China. But at, at its base, it's, a, it's, it's got themes of revenge. It's got themes of defending honor not just for yourself. It's got themes of fighting a good fight for the sake of the people around you. And it just, it's just a, a masterpiece of, uh, of martial arts action. And it tells something, it tells a story about something that people anywhere can resonate with. Uh, awesome. And I am going to go with Johnny Toe's Throwdown. Uh, which is currently streaming on the Criterion uh, channel, if you have the Criterion channel. Uh, it, it's a very odd and delightful movie. It's sort of a movie that trusts you know the normal plot line of a sports comeback story. So all that stuff's just happening in the background while the main characters do things like learn to play jazz saxophone. Uh, but uh, <laughs> every single character in it practices martial art. It just takes place in a world where everyone is a martial arts master and each character kind of expresses themselves through their martial arts in a unique way. So you can see how that sort of works as a, both the martial and the, and the art part. All right, Guys, thank you so much for talking with me for a little extra time. It's it's fun to geek out with you about this stuff. And I, you had a lot of wisdom for uh, American action makers to, to think about. So thank you so much for sticking around for uh, this little bit of Slate Plus for working. Thank you so thank much. You, uh, thank you so much, Isaac. That was a lot of fun. <laughs>